Welcome to episode 11 of the Corporate Real Estate Insider Podcast. Today, we are going to be mostly talking about life sciences real estate, uh, where we've been, where we are now, sublease availability, uh, and many other topics within the life sciences sector. Uh, Before we jump in, uh, as usual, we're going to be covering a variety of news topics from the last uh, two weeks. Uh, This week, I'm going to go first with a news story that uh, is definitely a, a bit of a bummer, but there's some interesting uh, learnings and insights from it. Uh, Sam Zell, legendary real estate investor, unfortunately passed away last week. He was 81, uh, lived a very full uh, and controversial life. Uh, was pretty disappointed to see some of the news coverage of his death. Uh, one uh, headline was Sam Zell, billionaire who bankrupted Tribune Company dies. Just like what a mischaracterization of this guy's life. I mean, he's probably one of the most prolific real estate investors of the last 50 years, has had a multi-decade track record of success and is characterized as buying the Tribune company, which I don't know a whole ton about uh, that particular acquisition because I have followed Sam Zell's real estate investing much more closely. Honestly, wouldn't be surprised if he somehow made money on that from selling and spinning off the uh, Tribune-owned real estate assets or something. But um, anyways, there uh, is a really interesting story that I'd love to share about Sam Zell's probably most notable real estate investment of his career, which was when he sold equity office property for $39 billion to Blackstone. So this happened in February of 2007. uh, And prior to the sale, equity office was a publicly traded REIT, uh, one of the largest in the world. And they were trading in the low $20 billion range. And Sam Zell was able to get Blackstone to buy uh, their publicly traded REIT for a massive premium to what the stock price was. And it resulted in a $39 billion purchase by uh, Blackstone. Um, The most interesting part of this story, though, is not that he sold a year before a mega office market uh, correction and the Great Recession and all that. But actually, that Blackstone, despite spending $39 billion for a real estate portfolio in the year before the Great Recession, actually produced some of the best real estate returns on a large amount of money ever in the history of the world. So um, diving in a little bit to the story, um, like as I was saying, they, Blackstone acquired this portfolio for $39 billion uh, in February of 2007. And they financed the deal with only $3.2 billion in equity. So literally less than 10% money down and the rest of it was financed with debt, which is pretty unbelievable when you think about the amount of debt capital was at risk if something went wrong. I mean, if values went down by more than 10%, it's 100% equity wipeout. And all of a sudden, all of the lenders are going to start uh, feeling the pain with principal loss too. Um, within several months of um, closing on the $39 billion purchase, Uh, Blackstone had sold 70% of the assets and they recognized that this portfolio, if it were disintermediated and sold to trophy property owners in each of the markets where Blackstone or um, equity office owned real estate, that they would be able to sell these properties for a premium where the individual parts are more than the sum. Um, So they were able to uh, offload um, well over $30 billion dollars of the $39 billion purchase price in just a couple months. And then they held on to only the best real estate through the financial crisis. And by 2016, the um, $3 billion investment that they had made had resulted in an $8 billion profit, right? So bought it for $39 billion with about $3 billion of debt after paying back the debt. Um, And um, also they hadn't sold all of the properties by then, but you know, fair market value of properties. Now, eight years, uh, $3 billion, $8 billion of profit. I mean, one of the most legendary real estate investments of all time. Um, And I know some of my co-hosts are going to be talking about this too. But what's so interesting is that that was a very uh, volatile point in the markets. And in hindsight, if I said, hey, how do you think you would have performed if you bought $39 billion worth of real estate in 2007? I think universally people would say you probably would have lost your shirt, would have done really badly. Um, Yet they had done well. So who is that next Sam Zell or that next legendary investor that is going to be investing in this era 
who's going to be able to figure out how to capitalize on current market conditions, buy when others are very fearful and make a ton of money. We'll see. Yeah, I'll just take it a different perspective. I, uh, as you talk about um, equity and Sam Zell, they were one of the most, um, I don't know, I want to say easiest, but just they were a pleasure to do business with when, when he ran the company, when he owned the company. And it was, it was um, an environment that changed so drastically and rapidly as they sold to Blackstone. It was equity was um, very tenant friendly. They had reasonable leases. They had just a very different mindset in how to um, to have a relationship with their clients, the tenants, and the brokerage community. And I remember in Boston, where Equity owned, I think, 13 buildings. They um, overnight, it was just a complete different atmosphere. Um, Blackstone came in. They did a huge. So not, not only did they buy the, the portfolio in Boston, 13 buildings, they did like a 400,000 foot buyout with State Street and bought them out of their lease early because the market was still going strong. They pushed rents overnight, you know, double digits. And it was just a different world as a broker. And um, I really appreciated the, uh, the team at Equity that was in place. Uh, many of them have become brokers, uh, worked with some of them. They were just... It was just a different mindset, different group, and um, you don't really see that in many firms, many landlords anymore. Yeah, just a second when Brian's talking about, um, I had the pleasure of being in the business when this all unfolded, um, and I couldn't agree more. And I would say to any landlord that might be listening to this podcast right now, you know, I realize some are extremely large institutional landlords that have a tremendous amount of bureaucracy. And that doesn't, that's not a negative thing. It's just, they've just got a lot of layers, right? A lot of things to go through uh, when it comes to, you know, setting rates, approving deals, you name it. But the one thing equity did so well is that they shielded all that bureaucracy from both the tenants and the brokers and made it incredibly easy to do deals with. And that's not the case for every landlord. And some landlords bring that bureaucracy to the table um, and just overcomplicate things. And it doesn't mean to say that, you know, transactions should be negotiated on the back of a napkin, but it doesn't need to be as complicated uh, as sometimes people make it. And those landlords that um, do as much as they can to speed the process and simplify the process and be tenant friendly and broker friendly end up doing the most deals. And that was akin to the culture at equity. And I can't uh, agree with uh, my colleague, Brian, more on that matter. I'll add my voice to the choir and remind folks that Equity Office bought the West Coast leading office building owner speaker properties in 2001 for like four and a half billion dollars. And I remember I knew people and know people who were at speaker properties and they would always talk about the culture of the team and how strong that internal team was. So I think that was a, a time of um, a few good landlords doing the business right. Yeah, at the end of the day, I think it's easy for uh, private equity firms and institutional real estate investors to uh, forget that without tenants, there's no buildings and nobody has a job uh, and that tenants paying rent every month funnels the entire industry. Uh, they are uh, undoubtedly the lifeblood of commercial real estate. Yet, uh, a lot of these real estate investors have to put their shareholders first when they're making these decisions. Um, so I, I don't doubt that they're sitting there uh, and I, 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 don't, I don't blame them for saying, hey, our shareholders come first. I, I genuinely believe for companies shareholders should come first. Um, that said, there's a huge caveat there. Because if you want to put your shareholders first, you actually have to put your customers first, your employees first, your team first. And generally, if you do that, then taking care of the shareholders uh, happens automatically. And it's actually a more efficient way to take care of the shareholders by taking care of um, everyone else first within reason uh, to get higher performance out of your team in this case of equity office pre the Blackstone acquisition to be able to uh, win deals and get deal flow from brokers and the community and tenants and all that, that they otherwise would not. I mean, you think about the difference between having an uh, office portfolio today that has 5% or 6% higher occupancy, but your rents are, you know, nominally lower or, you know, you've invested some additional capital and having the right team infrastructure to be really easy to deal with. Even if you have a higher cost structure or slightly lower rents, that occupancy today is worth so much more than 
having, you know, pushed and just been a little bit of a jerk and a little bit prickly and having friction on every single deal. There's a lot of landlords like that out there that uh, haven't recognized that the way that they act in the community has very long-standing reputational impacts and that they see deal flow differently because of it. I mean, a really good example is there is a Southern California landlord that is so easy to deal with, so quick at replying, uh, can make a, a deal with them literally in a phone call. And they just want a deal that, you know, I was representing for um, over 20,000 square feet of space that no other direct landlord even saw because the deal had to happen within a week. We only looked at a, sublease, a few subleases and then it's, hey, we're looking at this portfolio and subleases. That's it. So, I mean, what's the value of winning that? I mean, that certainly pays for uh, a lot of extra staff to reduce the friction of doing transactions. So let me dovetail on your, your commentary about Sam Zell, Tucker, and ask the question, yeah, Sam Zell would probably be um, waiting on the sidelines to pounce. And the, the really relevant question is when. Um, so I'm sharing a news story. It's, it's a month old now. Um, but it's still relevant. And because we've talked so much about the um, small regional banks that hold half of the commercial real estate debt that's out there. So who, who holds the rest? Uh, this is an article from Business Insider. And it talks about um, large pension funds, REITs, and insurance companies together holding about $1.2 trillion or 22% of the uh, $5.62 trillion in total commercial real estate debt outstanding. And they, they give a quote from CalSTRS. Uh, talking about writing down the value of its $52 billion in real estate holdings. Their chief investment officer said that the office sector alone, values are likely down 20%. 20%? Okay, so put a pin in that. I That number doesn't quite sound right to me. Um, the, the gentleman from TREP, who actually tracks all these real estate loans, was a little more... Um, pointed and said, this is just an indication of what's to come. I think that's more on point, maybe. Um, and this is what really caught me. So there's this organization called AFIRE, uh, Association of International Investors Focused Commercial Properties in the U.S. Uh, they, they surveyed 100 investors from 14 countries for Q1 2023 Pulse Report. And 39% of the 100 investors said they're bracing for the worst. Um, plan to reduce their holdings at least somewhat in 2023. Here again, 39 out of 100 are reducing somewhat. Um, and compare that, 27% of those folks who were surveyed said they plan to increase their positions. Uh, cap that with this comment. There's, there's money on the sidelines, however, with the availability and pricing of debt impeding deals. 70% of the AFIRE respondents said they're anticipating meaningful distressed acquisition opportunities as soon as the next six months. Okay, so uh, I think they're misreading it. I think they're too early. I think there's more more uh, room for this market to run down. But I wonder what the group thinks. Yeah, I, th I think if you saw maybe five days ago, um, it was reported that SL Green and Bernardo, Bernardo are selling assets in New York City at just unbelievably distressed prices to raise cash, right? So there's good, I think there's so much more opportunity coming like those are two if you were to look on the surface sl green being the largest landlord in new york city uh Vernado being around for a long time being having a great reputation great name and both of them are selling buildings so who's next to sell and if i, I you know i think there's there's a lot i think we're in the first or second chapter in terms of the trading of assets um you know in a book that's double digits chapters because it's there's just too many there's too many variables right now right and people think rates are going to come down so we're going to hold off right i was listening this morning to one of the fed chairmen that you know that was signaling that there's going to be a pause in interest rate hikes but they could pick back up and then you listen to commentary behind it and people think that there could be reductions before the end of the year so there's just a lot of risk and uncertainty and and in the financing side and how, you know, how can a Blackstone pull off a acquisition of equity office? They need a lot of debt and 
in today's debt markets, I don't think those deals are there. And I think there's so much more stress coming into the office market. Why jump at a deal today unless you can get it at rock bottom prices? But these larger deals where you have to put so much debt on the balance sheet, I just think there's, you know, those are 24 to me, 2024. I would just ask, I don't know if you know the answer to this. What are they selling? I would predict that it's not their trophy assets. It's their second tier uh, quality assets and follow that theme we've been talking about on a flight to quality and nobody wants to hold the bag on the class B, class C stuff. Yeah, I don't know the answer uh, in terms of their, you know, their asset down there, uh, but I think you're right. I think everybody's looking at buildings that are not performing and let's, you know, let's raise cash that way. I think one of the things that is interesting just conceptually to think about is the different ownership structures, right? If you have a pension fund uh, pension fund that owns real estate versus a publicly traded REIT that owns real estate and the REIT's getting massive amounts of withdrawals and is now a for seller, a pension fund does not have that same phenomenon, right? Um, you know, they're looking for uh, long, usually long-term investments with cash flow so they can pay out people that are, um, you know, at pension age or older. Um, at the same time, pension funds have a, a and, and this sort of goes without saying, but just to make a point, have dramatically less exposure to real estate than a publicly traded real estate investment trust would, which is 100% invested in real estate or real estate related assets. Um, at the same time, um, this is not the first time that pension funds, um, nor the last that pension funds will be caught in an asset class with dramatically depressing values. I mean, you look at the uh, you know, Canada Teachers Pension Fund losing $100 million in Sam Bankman-Fried's uh, FTX, right? The crypto scandal from, gosh, that feels like it was a long time ago, but it's probably only been, you know, four or five months since that all happened. Um, it just, the difference is that these pension funds almost universally are investing, with a couple exceptions, through this optimal portfolio theory of asset allocation, where you have certain percentages tied to different asset classes, and unfortunately, for a lot of these pension funds, just given the outperformance of real estate as an asset class from really, you know, 2009, 2010 through, you know, 2020, um, or call it uh, 2021, um, I mean, we had double digit returns essentially every single year, uh, beating out most of these other asset classes with the perception of much less risk, too. So I do worry. Um, you know, was the rebalancing of these portfolios around, hey, uh, we don't need to rebalance as aggressively, even though these assets have run up in price, because we're going to keep a higher asset allocation towards real estate. It's safer. It's getting great returns. We're going to have less money in venture in these different areas. Um, yet, at the same time, it's important to remember that real estate is uh, most definitely not the only asset class that is really struggling right now. Um, you know, venture capital, uh, whether it's investing in life science companies or technology, especially growth stage technology, is having a, a same time or a, a hard time. And I would imagine that um, a lot of these private equity firms that deployed a massive amount of money before interest rate spikes had projected selling those companies at probably much higher multiples than they'll be able to. So those private equity firms are either going to hang on to these companies longer and wait until the market hopefully improves to sell, um, or they're going to have lackluster returns or potentially even negative returns if they have a few deals that blew up in their portfolio. All right, well, let's, this, that kind of dovetails into what my news article um, and just kind of news of the week is um, related to. And I will say that um, all of this might be a little controversial. You might disagree with me. If you do, fantastic. That's what makes this podcast interesting. But this is all great news. Great news for landlords and great news for office tenants. And let me explain why. Again, <laughs> feel free to disagree. And also, I want to disclaim that I am not an a, a, um, equities investor, nor is this advice for anyone thinking of investing in equities or um, the stock market. So here's kind of what's going on um, in rel relative terms to what we were just talking about. The shares of these office landlords um, have dropped to historic lows. Go on CNBC.com and look in the tickers of all these big firms, some of which Brian already mentioned earlier in the pod. Um, and it's all a result of the sluggish returns to the office. 
So rewind six months ago, there was a little bit of excitement and a little bit of freneticism, I will even say, about this like surging return to office. It was going from like 20 to 30 to 40, upwards of 50%. Well, come like January when it hit about 50%, it's kind of stayed that way until today. And it's May, you know, it's end of May right now, and we're still hovering at 50%. Even those, you know, areas that were thought to be like back at 100% at some point this year, like Austin or Dallas or Houston are still kind of laggering at like 60-70%. Cities like that, which I'm in, Seattle, are at 30-40% at best. So we've kind of hit this stalled point, And I don't know at what point do we increase occupancy? Or is it just is this the new normal? I don't know. Um, but you have to look at the, the stock prices of some of these big firms that are traded on Wall Street that own predominantly office properties. They're off 30% this year alone. One of these firms that I won't even mention is back at their 1997 IPO pricing level. I mean, crazy drops in value. And that's why they're struggling and, and feverishly trying to sell off assets um, to add some liquidity uh, to their balance sheet. Um, and then you also remember, like, this is just we're talking about the big boys, but this, this is across the whole nation. I mean, office owners across the world, world even the country, uh, have billions of dollars in floating and low interest rate mortgages, billions of dollars. And all of that at some point has to get refinanced. And the question is, who wants to catch the falling knife, right? Like, I, I think right now in the market, yeah, interest rates are high. Are they going back down? I don't know. Anyone to say that, oh, they're at the peak, they're going to go down. They don't know. They also don't know if they're going to go up. Now, I don't think they're going to go up. And I'm one of those believers that at some point they'll go down. But there's still this uncertainty. And I think that uncertainty is is causing a lot of people um, a little bit of fear for jumping back in. Are they jumping in too early? You know, John mentioned that maybe it's too early. I think it is, too. I think there's more pain to come. But we just don't know. And now you look at the investors. So given the price of these stocks, what's actually going on right now in the markets and these investors are starting to shell, they're selling short, which is a wager that these share prices are going to fall even further. And I I mean, are they? I don't know. Um, But when the sentiment is this bad, then the question is maybe it's oversold. I don't know. But the point I, what I want to stress is that this uncertainty of the debt markets right now and return to office is what's stalling kind of like this correction in the market we need. And this is like, you're not gonna want to hear this, but we, like, I feel like we need these things to, to these disasters in the, you know, to, to resolve themselves, whether that means they get sold in the courthouse steps, whether they sold at a huge loss, whatever it might be, because once we breed certainty back into the markets, people like Sam Zell are going to buy real estate they're going to come out to the market. They're going to be able to do deals. They're going to be super aggressive. That's going to attract you know, new leases to be signed. And it will add a sense of calmness to the market. Whereas right now, there's all this nervous energy around what's going to happen and speculation. That which I'm perpetrating right now. I'm, telling, I'm, trying to, I'm adding to the fuel to the fire by talking about it. But the reality is, is that all this uncertainty has to work itself out, both with interest rates, all this troubled, these troubled asset loans, and all these you know, office buildings that are not occupied. And once that kind of resolves, which, by the way, I think is like a two-year process from now, then we'll kind of enter this new kind of normal state where people are willing to do deals, where there's less of this news about defaults, and kind of off we go on to uh, brighter pastures. But I think there's more pain to come. It would be funny if I went back and clipped uh, just segments of what Owen says and what I say uh, to try and create some hilarious statements. Owen said, you're not going to want to hear this, but these disasters need to resolve. <laughs> uh, and then you could clip my, uh, you have to put shareholders first, uh, which has a, I think, really negative implication that, you know, the next section, ne- next sentence was by putting your team first. But um, yeah, really interesting uh, coverage, Owen. Thanks for sharing all that. Uh, Brian, I know that you had something you wanted to talk about too. So why don't you jump in and then we'll transition to talking more about life sciences. Sure. So I think um, it plays well with what Owen was talking about, but you know, I think uh, everyone's favorite CEO was in the news again this week and he had a very different perspective than I'd heard from anyone. So I think it was worth bringing up, but Elon Musk brought up that uh, his perspective on an interview with David Faber at CNBC was that working from home was uh, morally wrong. And the quote goes to say that uh, I think that the whole notion of work from home is a bit fake, like the fake 
Marie Antoinette, quote, let them eat cake. It's not just a productivity thing, Musk said. I think it's morally wrong. Musk then referred to the, uh, the laptop classes living in la-la land as the group of people that work from home. And, you know, I think, I think, you know, first and foremost, I think he's a little bit too uh, out there with it being a moral question. But I think he brings up a good point. And I, and I think if you, th- if you look at the marketplace, it, there's two different kinds of companies. And he owns both of them, right? He owns a company that makes things, or multiple companies. It, but Tesla, where you have office workers and you have factory workers and you have engineers and people that need to be touching things and building things. And in a company where you have the, you know, their product, they make a product, that there's a certain segment of the population, a large one, that has to, has to be at the office or at their manufacturing facilities to have a certain group of them being able to work remotely and being able to work anywhere they want, it, it probably really does raise some real issues within the culture of the company and how the company works together and how the company actually thinks about each other, right? And then you have the true tech companies or other companies that can be like Twitter, that where their product is all on a computer and what's the culture of that company is there morality as compared to twitter to tesla because some of the tesla employees need to go to the factory and work i think that's crazy but i think the marketplace you'll start to see a shifting of um of how companies approach this because companies that have people in a building every day because that's part of their job I, th- I personally think are going to be much more inclined to bring everybody back because there's a certain piece that has to come back versus a company that everyone can work from anywhere all the time. And those, uh, you know, those decisions and those CEOs are, have a much more difficult challenge. I mean, there was a, a leader in Boston of a large private company. They have, I think, about 800 people globally. They just leased about 420,000 feet here in Boston in a brand new building, hasn't delivered yet, uh, of the prime top of the class real estate. And they just came back and said that we want all our people back in the office five days, which was a big deal. However, in the same statement, they said, well, there are certain jobs, engineers, <laughs> software engineers that can still stay on their hybrid schedule. So even within a company, they're already starting to create kind of this class warfare, which I think will be interesting to watch how it plays out. Yeah. I love Elon's ability to cut through the noise. Um, He's uncanny ability to do that, and obviously it gets headlines. Um, I think the same. So let's go back to his comment about he thinks working from home is morally wrong. Um, I, as you can see, I'm in the office. I'm here five days a week, and so a little bit. I'm going to kind of expel like my own personal bias to the to working from home or working from the office for the sake of the pod. Um, but I think you could say the same about the work from office high horses. Uh, the people that have super nice offices with beautiful views, amazingly appointed, you know, workspaces and so forth. Um, and so the whole like work from home, work from the office is a little soapboxy to me. Um, and it's kind of getting played out. Um, and I feel like everyone knows everyone's opinions and let's just kind of let them be as they may. And if you decide to revert back to one or the other, go for it. Um, but I think the right answer is specific to the organization. So keep Musk in mind, you know, he works for, he runs, does it work for, he owns and runs Tesla, right? So he has got a massive manufacturing facility where people are coming in every single day to build cars. Um, Not to mention all the other people that come into the office to do other things or facility. And I think what he's referencing is that he's got a other contingency of staff that are people that are working behind a desktop computer and aren't on the floor on the production floor, making a car or doing whatever they're doing at SpaceX or whatever. And so um, his circumstance is a little bit unique in the sense he's got a bifurcated population that doesn't want to be bifurcated. He wants them to be all back together. Whereas, you know, I've got clients who are predominantly remote, or even some cases, I've got clients that have gone work from anywhere. um, And it works for them. Um, Wouldn't work for our company, I can tell you that. But um, and I again, I have a biased opinion on this. But the whole thing's getting a little soapboxy for me. And so for the sake of just uh, expressing my own opinion, my opinion would be like, let us let it be what it is and let's move on from that discussion. Um, not for this pod, but just I'm talking about for the nation. Yeah, Brian, gosh, why'd you bring this up again? It's played out. Get off your soapbox. No, I'm just kidding. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that it's amoral to work from home, uh, but Elon Musk sure knows how to get attention, uh, and despite that, uh, I still love him and everything that he's doing to advance society. But 
but yeah, it's uh, oh, and I I hadn't uh, you know really thought of it in that context. I think that that's an interesting framing of the issue. I mean, I think there's a lot of things in life that are not fair, and certain people are uh, massively disadvantaged for a whole host of reasons, whether it be you know health or financial or whatever it might be. And that doesn't mean that everyone else should uh, you know live in that same manner just because there's some people that um, you know drew the the short straw, um, as unfair as that may be. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think the bigger reason to work in an office is it's much more productive and teams have stronger culture and performance and all that things that, uh, as Owen said, we've talked about a lot on the pod. So anyways, with that, let's jump in to talking about life sciences. Uh, I think that perhaps we should start with Brian, given that he's in Boston, Boston is the largest life science market in the country. And has had the most frenetic change as the life science funding uh, during the pandemic just exploded. Um, I mean, Brian, I'm sure you're going to talk about this, but I bet the amount of life science funding went up by multiples during COVID. Um, had a huge impact on real estate. Let's hear about it from Brian. And then let's hear about it in these other life science markets. Uh, San Diego is the second largest life science market, which uh, John is based in. Seattle, LA are not too far behind. Uh, certainly in the top 10. Uh, so yeah, excited to hear. Thanks, Tucker. Yeah, Boston is obviously the epicenter of life sciences, and it's a it's a great market to to be in. I mean, there's been a, a, roughly an 80% over the last 10 years, 80% growth rate in life science jobs, right? So it feels like every company you hear about in this market is... Um, is founded in the life science sector or to support the sector. I would say there's a caveat right now because of um, because the Clean Tech and, and uh, the CHIPS Act and the IRA that have uh, really created a whole nother. I mean, that's the, the, the beauty of Boston is there's a whole nother industry that has kind of been born overnight with massive growth. And the life science sector is still just chugging along. There's you know, there's um, a lot of weakness in the sector right now, right? There's there's a pipeline of, um, there's like 30 to 35 million square feet of existing inventory. There's about 15 million square feet of, uh, of inventory under construction. So roughly 45% of the market is under construction to deliver in a market that had, uh, you know, around 7 million square feet of demand 18 months ago. And that demand is down to one and a half million round numbers. So you've seen a, z- a vacancy rate of zero, literally zero percent. Um, now it's, you know, now it's got 70 subleases and it's probably 10 percent, uh, just under 10 percent. So, um, you, you know, it's the it's a market that has been extremely um, robust and positive for, for landlords. Uh, rent growth has been you know, astronomical. It's uh, you know your your average asking rents are still on a triple net basis. They're still around eighty dollars a foot, um, but there's a lot of cracks in the armor right now. There's been growth out of your core markets, which were Boston and Cambridge, and you've seen all these pockets of space pop up all across all across uh, suburban markets in in directions in areas that. Are non-traditional. I know part of this is going to talk about markets that have have been, you know, moved. The Seattle's of the world, or the San Francisco's, or the Vancouver's, where we have clients that, um, you know, that are that are opening offices or or research centers, and and um, we're also seeing a lot of companies in this market open in places you wouldn't. You know, thirty miles outside of Boston, outside of Cambridge, they're opening, and landlords have bought. Uh, you know, former Raytheon campuses to convert. They've bought uh, uh, large tracts of land that used to have different uses, and, and they're converting them in these suburban markets. That'll be interesting to see how that plays out because the demand is just not there uh, to support it today, like it was 18 months ago. Yeah, let me let me chime in. Interesting to hear you say Boston is 35 million square feet. I put San Diego next with an inventory of lap space at about 21 million square feet. And I will also speak to the Bay Area, which has a total inventory of about 9 million square feet. And the themes that I think are relevant today are the conversions and the subleases. I'll start with the subleases, uh, which are really sort of driving the market because 
Before the downturn, companies were aggressively taking down space as a defense against not having that space to expand into. So they were inventorying excess space because if they didn't get it then, they weren't going to get it, have it when they need it. Um, and it was really like a game of musical chairs where it happened pretty quick that um, the, the music stopped. And so now in each of these markets, it's most interesting, I believe, to, to study the onslaught of subleases. Um, San Diego has a total of um, 30 subleases today, over 10,000 feet. It's about 700,000 square feet. Um, the market, otherwise, the vacancy rate would be about 7%. Availability rate then bumps up to about 11%. What's interesting to me, <clears throat> if we look at the, um, the space coming online, oh, by the way, there's only one requirement in the market today, over 100,000 square feet in San Diego. So um, it's going to be hard to, um, to, to lease up that existing inventory of vacant and uh, available space. But let me come back to the subleases. So you've got these subleases on the market that are typically fully furnished, uh, aggressively priced because they're not trying to prop up the building value. They're just trying to, you know, solve the problem of the melting ice cube. And so the landlords are forced to compete with these subleases. Uh, they're, they're largely not coming off their asking rents. They're sort of still advertising these old, old, higher asking rental rates. But they've got to find a way to compete in a market where the subleases are driving the current, um, current market rents. For example, turnkey TIs on a short-term lease, you know, including FF&E, things that we've never seen before. So I think the sublease availability is what's driving the market today, forcing the landlords to compete with that. And coming back to this idea of the conversions, in the middle of one of the most brutal office markets I've ever seen, uh, people questioning whether these class B, class C uh, market office buildings are going to become obsolete at all. A lot of folks were pinning their hopes on conversion. There are a lot of folks thinking, okay, forget it. We're going to build it out as lab space. We're going to convert it. And that's how we're going to get through this thing. And all of a sudden the lab market dries up and they're caught with buildings planned for conversion. <clears throat> and they worry if there's going to be user demand to lease those spaces. Um, not only are these conversions going to add inventory to the market? There were planned construction projects, some of which are going forward. Um, in San Diego, there's about three to four million square feet of new inventory. <clears throat> I told you there's an 11% availability rate. If you add that three to four million square feet of inventory to the existing availability, all of a sudden we've got a 30% availability rate. And real quick, I'll hit the San Francisco numbers in the same way. Uh, Nine million total inventory, um, 13 percent vacancy, 27 percent availability, big, big numbers, but there's three and a half million square feet of planned projects coming online. And if you add those to the inventory and you don't get any leasing done in the interim, the availability rate jumps to 47 percent. So just brutal. Um, you know, ho hopefully this market can turn around. I, I wrote an article in, during, in the middle of the pandemic called Life Science to the Rescue. Um, it was certainly the darling in that time. It was remarkable what we were able to do with, with the vaccine very quickly. Um, a lot of money rushed in to life science companies, but that spigot is turned off and we'll have to see what happens next. Yeah, John, good point. That's that's the uh, interesting. So the funding was off, it's off 45 percent nationally. Right. So there's there's a drastic decrease in funding. And I know here there's, you know, say it's 60 to 70 subleases on the market and landlords. One there's a couple of points. One landlords will need to compete against space that is built. And it's built at varying degrees, and we can talk about that later about what that means to a tenant. But the if they want to compete against these subleases, they'll need to build space from from shell because most of the companies coming in aren't going to one spend the cash to build space when they can move into a sublease and likely go direct on the space. And two, they um, they don't want they don't have the timeline to build the space right so it's much faster to move into something that's already improved and most of these life science companies their timelines are much more condensed they get good news on some trials or some good data and they need to get quickly into some level of uh, uh, further trials or production or any any host of reasons but they need to move real quickly it could be nine months later they need to get to a to a uh, to the next step and the marketplace just doesn't allow that if you're building from shell what what is interesting though and, and talking to someone um, uh, the other day is say there's 70 subleases 60 to 70 
half of the companies that are subleasing space a year from now will be out of business. So you've got, say, 40 to 45 subleases today that will be direct space with a landlord. So if you're a landlord that's leased half his building, some of that space is on the sublease market. You're not building space in your vacancy because you're going to be getting back without income, likely the space that's that's leased today. So it creates this lockup in the marketplace for landlords, and they're in a tough spot. So until they can get a tenant, why build space? Um, because they're likely going to have to release the space that's already been leased to these to, to these companies because you know the industry does not have a lot of credit. People will do deals based on who the you know who the investment team is and also who who the scientists are that have founded the company right They put a lot of weight on those they don't put there's no credit in the industry other than big pharma so it'll be interesting how that all plays out and and if the absorption's not there to take that space down you're going to have to see a lot of landlords riding and sitting on vacant buildings. Before pre-conversion, you're going to see a lot of vacancy sitting in some of these these spec buildings that are delivered, and obviously the subleases need. Uh, there's a lot of subleases on on the market nationally as well, so it'll be interesting. Yeah, it's it's important to note, like just for our listeners, uh, I, want to, I want to back up just a brief moment as to kind of how we got here um, and really what's kind of set the table for all this discussion we're having today. And um, it's important to note that 2021 that for those that don't know life science was literally a historic record year of leasing for life sciences. So go back as far as you want. There was never more leases signed at the highest rates we've ever seen um, in history than in 2021. So you have to keep in mind, we came off like an extreme high and with all the uncertainty that's kind of unfolded in the economy and the debt markets and so forth, that's created, I won't go so far as say a perfect storm because Life science is much more insulated from the of the events of the world than office space is, like we just talked about previously earlier in this pod. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we came from. So you have to understand, like, the fundamentals of today's market aren't necessarily as dire as that of the office market. But coming off of 2021 of a record year, and 2022 wasn't too too far off that, it's, it's a huge departure. Um, so I spent the weekend reading some uh, reports, quarterly reports from some of these big firms that own a lot of the life science real estate. I won't go into say who they are, but you can figure them out. Um, many are, you know, one of one in fact is a massive REIT. And looking at their portfolio, it was interesting to see that you know there's there's clear evidence that they too see the issues that are kind of within the industry right now. Um, the biggest one, the biggest REIT that plays in this space, is cut back on a quarter of a billion dollars of construction spending this year, um, just to kind of weather the storm, knowing that there just isn't that kind of demand. So keep in mind, if there was a surge of demand or there was a demand out there, they wouldn't be cutting back a quarter of a billion dollars of construction. They'd be doing that to capture that demand. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is that um, this this massive REIT has 850 tenants approximately right now in their portfolio. And I was trying to think like, okay, well, What's kind of the barometer as to how they're performing? And that's really like you if you peel back the Pfizer's and the Amgen's and the Gilead's and so forth, like who else is in that portfolio? Well, it's a lot of, you know, venture backed or private equity backed, you know, startups or young companies that have some promising science for a drug that could cure a disease someday. Um, and I was trying to figure out like what percentage of their portfolio uh, includes those tenants. And this one report um, I read actually disclosed it was 8%. So 8% of this massive REITs portfolio is venture-backed or private equity-backed startup life science companies um, that they do a very good job, I will say, of incubating with hopes that someday they hit it big and all of a sudden become the next Pfizer or, or such or get likely get bought out by someone like Pfizer. And so if you look at their portfolio now and see that in some markets, you know, vacancies at 3%, sometimes it's 5 4 et cetera, and that they're exposed with another 8% of these companies that... Brian, my colleague just mentioned, might be out of business in a year, that itself could add a tremendous amount of availability within their portfolio um, if the company just simply goes belly up and they it's not even a sublease anymore. It's just, hey, we're gone. It's a midnight move. So think about that exposure. Um, and then also note that like a lot of this isn't so much based on um, anything but just a lot of uncertainty. Like The venture capital companies, by and large, are doing fine. They've got plenty of money. But there's just a lot of uncertainty in the market. And I think the earnings calls I listened to 
pointed to that, which is that it's not that the venture community is not doing well or doesn't have the capital. It's that there's just a, still a lot of uncertainty in the market right now. And it's important to note too, however, that life sciences don't equate them to tech. They are not as dependent on venture debt as tech is. Um, and so it's, it, it's definitely a tenants market or becoming one. And it's, it's, it's following the same kind of vein that the office market is. But it's not as crazy as um, as the office market per se. But the biggest risk is, like I said, are these younger companies who, to Brian's point, may not be around in a year. I want to speak to that to folks who may not understand exactly how biotech works. Uh, you know, these companies who have initial drug candidates, and it's a long road to get through the clinic phase one, phase two, phase three approval, and on to commercial manufacturing. <clears throat> Could be ten to fifteen years, and they're funded in increments of two to three years. So they aren't. There, there's no discussion of revenue. There's discussion of burn rate. Like how quickly are we going to burn through the current round? And it's typically two to three years. So if you're looking for a follow-on round to keep the doors open, to keep the lights on in this environment, you're probably not going to get it. You're going to see a big down round or no available money for your next round. That's why these companies, unlike tech or other industries that you know, you wouldn't fail that quickly. I think you'll see a, a number of companies that can't secure the round they need to keep the doors open. Yeah, and I think part of that, John, and, and from what I've uh, anecdotally have heard and 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 figured out from conversations is that when you, anytime you have a massive amount, a massive increase in funding into any industry, and 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 this is no different, you you have like the players that have been playing in the space for years. Kind of get to take a look at all the companies that the, that are that are being funded. They get to pick the cream of the crop, and then all this new money that's coming in has the rest of it. And as you trickle down, more and more companies are being funded. The funding of companies in uh, with the research that they had to get funded got thinner and thinner and thinner as more money was chasing the industry. So there's more companies were found based on thinner research and 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 they could be great technologies. It's just too soon, and they got. Uh, a, a funding round that required them to take real estate or allowed them to take real estate, I should say. And as, and as the market thins out, the investors have retreated back to their, you know, those vacation investors are back in their core industries. The core investors in the market are there and they're looking at the marketplace saying, okay, this is not a company we need to fund. That technology, that science needs to be proven more. It needs to be sold off and, and combined with other, you know, there could be 15 companies chasing one issue and there really should be five. And that's, that's the net of it. And that process to kind of level out the marketplace is, is just starting right now. Yeah. The, the days of uh, raising money at 0% uh, with a 10 slide PowerPoint deck are over <laughs> and people are being much more uh, cautious about where they put their money and invest in. But um, yeah, I want to just bring it back. Like I, you, you know, John and Brian, you guys get a good do good job of talking about San Diego and in Boston. I want to just kind of bring it back quickly to Seattle for those listeners that might be in the specific Northwest or looking to be here to give you a sense of what's going on because we are a much smaller market than San Francisco, San Diego, and Boston, but still we have some big players here. Um, and so it's much like what you're experiencing in your markets we're having here. Um, the biggest uh, challenge for landlords for leasing space is no surprise the subleases. Um, there's a lot of them. It seems like every few weeks we see more. Um, and a lot of them, unfortunately, and this is kind of scary, are from companies who took way too much space in that record year I talked about, 2021, at historic numbers. I mean, in terms of like rates that are extremely high. Now, we, we, I think we talked about this in a you know, in pod two or three, where part of that suggests poor real estate decisions were made, but that's kind of water over the dam at this point. But there are tenants out there trying to sublease 50% of space they took in 2021 or 2022 at rates that are 50% what they're paying. And so think of the burden that puts on these companies. And so even though some of these companies took over 100,000 square feet, they're carrying 50, 60, 70, 80,000 feet that they no longer need paying, in this case, you know, low to mid nineties on a net basis, trying to offload it for probably something in the fifty to six fifty to sixty dollar range, um, getting a fifty percent recovery, um, which is painful. Uh, and these are commitments that these companies made uh, for ten years because the market was so hot back then 
landlords could demand, either sign a 10-year lease or we'll find the next person. And so what's been fascinating to watch the market unfold, we had all these new deliveries delivered um, in 2021, 2022, where people were chasing deals, converting office buildings, like John mentioned, to life science buildings. And now to compete with the subleases, we have institutional landlords. These are not mom and pops offering space that they've gone ahead and spec'd out. When I say spec'd out, I mean built out. Um, not only with all the finishes, but they put benches in, they put all the furniture, all the fume hoods, et cetera, um, ready to go. Like less moving your people and your computer monitors in, you could go work in there tomorrow. Um, and then offering that space on as little as one or two year terms, just to get people in the space with hopes that getting them in there for a year or two then provides them the ability to renew that tenant long-term a year or two down the road. It's pretty crazy. And so to see a market that has gone like a 180 so quickly and to the point where landlords are now furnishing spaces at their dime just to get people into the space is pretty, pretty phenomenal. I think one of the most interesting phenomenons that is very specific to life sciences is that the vast majority of life science companies are working on products that they know will have uh, like 100% or very close to 100% market adoption if the technology works. And in the technology sector, you have the opposite problem. <clears throat> um, almost always you have, uh, you know that you can execute on the technological side of building an app or something, and it's much more about market adoption. So I think that a lot of these companies, as they were making these major real estate commitments, are sitting there saying, hey, look, as long as we pass our FDA trials, this is a you know billion or 10 or $100 billion company, and we're going to get acquired by Moderna or whoever, does it really matter? if we're spending more on real estate. And that attitude in an environment where funding was readily available, uh, I think was widespread. And now that the funding is not available, I think a number of these companies are realizing that they have created a scenario that is going to burn months and months of, um, of capital that they could have used to extend the runway to hit additional milestones and get more funding. Um, at the same time though, these real estate costs in the context of life science companies are so, so small. Um, so there are situations where life sciences companies, the cost of not getting space that prevents them from saving a week or a month on the pathway to getting a drug approved uh, is worth throwing millions of dollars at to make sure that they're never, uh, real estate's never on the critical path that pre prevents them from growing at the rate that they need. So it's a very complicated industry with a lot of considerations for companies that are taking down space, uh, working with general technology companies that have you know less technical execution risk and much more market adoption risk is a very different phenomenon than working with life science companies. So Tucker, I would I would tell you that the the you're right, except uh, I'll take this back to our business, and this is one of the things that wakes me up every day is that. You know, I, I'm in this business to help people and help companies make really good decisions and help companies succeed. And there's a there's a lot of brokers that ran into life sciences because they were chasing fees. And I can t I can just continue to see every time you talk to another company, they the broker that worked with them advised them so poorly, it's almost just unethical the advice that some. And it's because they just don't know and, and they're chasing fees or they don't know, but they, they don't put a very sound business case together in terms of what their true cost of the real estate is going to be because the, the scientists and the companies, they don't have the knowledge and they're relying on brokers to, to provide them information and they're giving them assumptions that are just criminal personally. I, and the industry has gotten so weak in terms of the level of advice we give companies. And if I give anyone any advice is that really truly go through what your, what, what your costs are going to be, what your assumptions are going to be, what the market's really going to be. And don't play into brokers um, creating this noise around limit, limited options or limited availability or, or – um, you know, needing to bank space or needing to take down space defensively, the and then not really truly understanding the cost of getting up and running. You know, there's 
there's an easy way to, to get to a full cost, and there's a really challenging way. And you have to know the industry. You have to know the market. You have to be knowledgeable and experienced. And I could tell you, everybody in Boston that used to be, um, or at least a lot of people that used to be tech brokers are now life science brokers. And the deals that we're trying to unwind or, the, or if you go take a client into a sublease and you start to peel back the onion, it's like, I would never do a sublease in this building with this tenant because the, the underlying lease is so poorly written. And it's it's kind of sad where the industry has gone because of um, because of the the growth in uh, and where it where it went so quickly. Yeah, you make a good point there, too. And it's com- I would ca- counsel tenants to um, expect the unexpected as well. And what I mean by that is that. It, Brian, you hit the nail on the head. There's been a ton of brokers that have now all of a sudden proclaimed their life science experts. I, I get, I've seen some of their outreach to my clients that were forwarded back to me, and they now have like signatures that say like life science practice group, as if that somehow suggests that they're some sort of expert. But neither here nor there. Um, I will say that like if you're talking, if you're seeking counsel and representation for an upcoming assignment. And whether that be an incubator space to tide your cells over until you have your funding to get your next permanent space or whatever it might be. Um, when you're looking for representation, ask questions. And if someone's coming in and talking about themselves and their resume for 30 minutes, well, who's the meeting about? It's about themselves, not you. Um, and I would hope that those people are that are out there looking for space are asking their representation to really kind of come up with a sound strategy around how to take down space in this environment, um, keeping in, in making a hedge against the future as to what may or may not be happening and having a thoughtful approach around that. And I want to, I bring that up because there's a client of mine who we're out solving for an assignment right now who just landed a huge round of funding, but we're being very, very prudent with our real estate because of a couple things is number, number one, they're still venture backed, but two, you know, they're expecting incredible growth. Um, and we, but we, at the same time, we wanted to take advantage of the sublease market because subleasing right now is where the tremendous value might be. And we were looking at a sublease here in Seattle that was tens of thousands of square feet. I won't say exactly how big because then you could figure out what it is. And I want to respect the confidentiality of, of both the subtenant sub landlord, but um, nevertheless, it had a tremendous amount of term left. We're talking nine years of term left. And I called the broker and the broker said, you know, we won't take anything less than full term and for all the space. Okay, well, good luck with that. I mean, that's a tremendous amount of space for right now in your term. There's not many, I don't think there's a single tenant out there looking for that kind of demand right now. And so um, we went ahead and submitted an offer at anyway after touring, and the offer was for three years. So think about that. Like normally a sub landlord doesn't want a sublease space for anything less than their full term, because if it's less than their full term, when that sub tenant's lease expires, they have to go back and remarket the space in what could be a better or worse environment and could have yield varying degrees of success. Um, and not to mention, if someone needs less than the entire space, it encumbers that sub-landlord's ability to find a tenant for the balance. But nevertheless, what we found, um, surprisingly, and what was good for my client, is that the sub-landlord was willing to do, A, a shorter term than that of which was their remaining lease term of their, of their master lease, and B, um, give us less than the entirety of the space. Um, and so... That's the world we're in today where companies are trying to stop the bleeding. These are these are the companies that are subleasing space, and that's where tremendous value might be. And if you listen to kind of, I would say, 90% of those who do what we do out there um, profess that, hey, this is what's possible. Well, based on what? Based on historicals? Well, historically, we're, that's that's exactly what it is. It's historical. We're in a new normal today, and I, I, I pardon, I hate that word. It's a, become too cliche. So let's say we're in a new world today in terms of what's what's available and what's possible. Um, and I encourage everyone to expect the unexpected because the terms we're able to achieve today are pretty pretty phenomenal. It's a, oh, and gr- great point. I'll just add a little bit to that. So if you think about the like you said, forty five percent of the inventory is being built in the pipeline. Uh, for Boston. 63% of that pipeline is available in 23, 91% of the pipeline is available in 24, and 75% of it is available um, in 25. So the firms that are that are leasing are the same firms that you, you, you'd think about. So they all of these buildings have representation on the direct side, and they have landlords that have underwritten these buildings and have construction costs that have rents that are 
higher than the rents were in their pro forma when they started the construction before. Then you take these subleases that have come to market, and the same brokers are listing subleases. Where do you think those sublease rents are? They're equal to where the direct space rents are because they can't go to their clients and tell them, oh, hey, we need to cut rents because it doesn't meet their pro forma. So they're artificially holding sublease rents higher in the marketplace. We see it every day. And and you don't get to fish those out. One, you, you, you if you listen to these brokers, they're going to tell you that they won't do anything less than the full term or the full cost, right? You get there by submitting offers. You get there by working with someone who's independent from, from these these landlords so they don't have a landlord hanging over their shoulder and you can actually list the sublease at a number that's going to make it go uh, and get leased but you also get there but and no one's dead right you gotta you gotta get a, an offer on the table understanding exactly what you want and let the client let their client make a decision so it, it's uh we're seeing the same thing every day it's one of my favorite things to say there's no such thing as market rent and now more than ever there's no such thing as market rent. Every transaction is a process of price discovery. Okay, there you have it. Some interesting news stories, some hot takes from Brian, as usual. A lot of great coverage on life sciences. That concludes episode 11. Thanks so much for listening. We are hoping to do a audience question episode in the next couple of episodes here, so maybe 12, 13, or 14. We would enormously appreciate it if you could email us at uh, podcast at the CREinsider.com. Let us know if you have any questions. Uh, we would be happy to talk about them on the pod uh, and give you our thoughts. Uh, until next time, thanks so much. <laughs>